Hello and welcome back to the Final Third Podcast. It is Monday. It is the news and predictions episode where we go over all of the big happenings on and off the field in the football world. I'm AJ Tabura. I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm a fan of Minnesota United, which I'm very happy is going well, despite still some feelings of underlying issues. Minnesota United, they're doing great. I'm really, really happy. Uh, for that West Ham United, which we'll get into, but I'm very, very angry about, very mad. And the U.S. national teams, uh, U.S. men's national team, which has done amazing in terms of the player quality, the player development uh, as of late. And the U.S. women's national team, who saw the U-20 U.S. women's national team crash out of uh, the World Cup. Or is it U-17? One of the two. Anyways. Usually, I am joined by my co-host, Jack. He is still on his vacation, well-deserved. And so I am just going to be filling in for the both of us again this week. But even though he's not here, this is going to be, I think, a good episode because I've done a lot of research. So this episode is going to be very tactics and stats driven. And we're going to talk about a lot of cool things that are going on in the soccer world, whether that's teams doing really well. And we're talking about why they do good things on the pitch and some teams that aren't doing so well and we'll talk about what they're doing not so good on and off the pitch because it's a multifaceted issue a lot of times these bad performances are so yeah if you guys like the show follow us on twitter at final third show uh we'll tweet a lot i haven't been tweeting a lot because i actually just took an exam for my engineering at all civil engineers if they want to become professional engineers have to take this fundamental of engineering uh, exam before uh, and then get some experience before they can take the big boy exam the, the professional engineering exam uh, and so I, I took that first exam in about four years I'll probably take the second exam and so hopefully I pass but I've, I've been doing a lot of studying for that so I haven't been able to put as much time into the Twitter account or really watch soccer at all in the past you know, three weeks had to rely a lot on highlights, but this is like the first weekend where I was like, all right, I'm just going to watch a ton of soccer. That's what I did. And I, I can't wait to talk about it. Final third show.com. If you guys want a one-stop shop for all things, final third show, it's a nice website and check it out. That's where all of our social media is. If you need links, if you want to listen to us on a different platform, the links are also going to be there for easy access. It's cool. It's fun. It's great. Okay, we're going to talk um, a lot about the Premier League. Uh, I understand we talk about the Premier League a lot, but we'll also talk about uh, Americans abroad as well as some Bundesliga because some crazy things happened there as well. Let's start off with the first story that I want to talk about, which is Casemiro to Manchester United. I think this is uh, a, a very interesting story right here, right? So uh, Casemiro, one of Real Madrid's most respected players in the last few years, leaves uh Los Blancos with three La Liga titles, one Copa del Rey, five Champions Leagues, three Club World Cups to his name. Uh, I, I feel like, in my opinion at least, he was part of one of the best modern midfield trios of all time with Cruz, Modric ahead of him. Uh, many refer to it as the Bermuda Triangle because the ball goes there and it disappears because that's how well they dominate that midfield. Just recently, they won the Supercopa de España, I believe is what they call it, in Spain. And so that was their last trophy together, because now Casemiro, who um, was a very key part of that midfield, some might say that he was probably not going to be the expected first one out of that midfield to retire or to leave the club. I'd say it was might have been Cruz that 
either retired or left the club first. But nope, Casemiro did, and he moves to Manchester United. Who, if you you follow the show and know really anything about Manchester United, you'll know that the thing that Jack and I like to harp on is the fact that Manchester United sign a lot of different players, whether it's in recent years, Jadon Sancho or Varane or Ronaldo. But the thing that they really do need is a defensive midfielder. And that's just not something that has popped up a lot in terms of rumors. But now in seemingly like three days since the the rumor was suggested and to the signing of Casemiro, they finally have their defensive midfielder and he's going to be paid 350,000 pounds a week. I'm actually forgetting how much his actual uh, transfer was I guess I could look that up, but regardless, I mean, this is a, a huge, huge deal for Manchester United getting a, a player of his quality in a position of need and to fulfill it very, very quickly. That is pretty much a home run transfer right there. Uh, and now I'm looking at it 53 million euros is really good, is it is what, what he transferred on? Uh, compare that to some other signings like. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Ben White, even though Ben White has been good. I, I always just know that he's like 50 million euros. That's always like burning my brain. But a lot of the other signings uh, in this summer transfer window have been for more and maybe not going to be as influential as Casemiro is on this uh, on this Manchester United team. Uh, that being said, there are some concerns partially with Real Madrid, who loses a very good Casemiro. I mean, he he was able to protect that back line very well. Now Real Madrid are potentially targeting Pierre-Emile Hoiberg of Tottenham. You know, Hoiberg is so important for Tottenham. I don't really think that Conte or Spurs are going to let him go without a huge fight. But if it looks like it's on the docket, I guess you might as well get rid of him right away so you have a replacement for him on Spurs. But regardless, that's Real Madrid's issue to solve. Let's talk about Manchester United's issues that are potentially being solved. Uh, but the, before that, the first thing I thought was just funny when I first reacted to this to this uh, signing was you have Varane, Casemiro, and Ronaldo, legends in their own right for Real Madrid, uh, with Maguire as the captain. Just very funny. Maguire obviously doesn't fit there. That is the joke. Ha, ha, ha. Maguire's a bad defender. I don't know if it's actually a joke. I mean, at this point, it's just kind of sad that that he is doing this poorly for Manchester United, even though, no, it's still funny. It's still funny now that I think about it. Uh, but what is Manchester United getting out of Casemiro that is going to be kind of the make or break for their season, really? Well, they're getting a very simple and effective defensive midfielder. He is really good at covering for his back line and getting things started by progressing the ball. When you look at his advanced stats, they put him in the top 10% of all midfielders in Europe in key defensive actions like aerials one, blocks, and tackles. Yet, it's clear from the eye test and from the stats that United aren't buying him solely because of his attacking prowess. And a lot of it does come down to like that defensive stats that I mentioned. Despite him being able to get a nice shot off relatively regularly, we've seen the goals that he's been able to score. He's still only in the 50th percentile for things like XG and assists. So when you look at Manchester United and you look at the quality of attackers that they have, at least on paper, like Fernandez, Ronaldo, uh, Sancho, Rashford, whatever, it's clear that they're not going to be necessarily reliant on him to create stuff out of nothing. And a lot of that's going to be the one hole that they are kind of missing, which is defensive midfield. And when you look at it defensively, he is head and shoulders above the other United midfielders. 
whether it's clearances per game, tackles per game, whatever, it is a good margin ahead of the two uh, central midfielders that Manchester United had before, which was McTominay and Fred, the McFred duo, as many would say. Uh, the same McFred duo that many have criticized for not doing enough to control the midfield. And when you look at it, he will be controlling the midfield at least better than McFred has done. That being said, my worry is that unlike with Real Madrid, who dominate the ball with a great midfield, you know, he also has Cruz and Modric ahead of him, uh, that covers up a, his lack of pace and ability uh, to recover when he gets turned. So him playing aside Fred or McTominay, I don't think will be enough for him to get the coverage that he needs without some changes to uh, Eric Ten Hogs, the head coach's 4-2-3-1 shape. Like, there needs to be some other player other than the midfield that he plays with, whether that's McTominay or Fred or, I don't know, maybe some other player that they want to bring in. There needs to be some kind of change tactically to give him the more support that he, I don't think, will get with players that aren't as good like Fred or McTominay. Because when you look at it, I keep on saying look at it, but when you... Uh, view the types of teams and the, the caliber of teams that Manchester United are going to go up against, right? It's not going to be necessarily easy for him to not need pace, I should say. Many teams that are going to be rivaling United's ability are going to be rivaling their ability because of their uh, ability on the ball. They can play at a faster pace, right? You look at what Leeds United did, and you look at what... Uh, Liverpool can do on the ball what Tottenham and Arsenal have been uh, tactically developing this th this style of play is at a faster pace and I'm not gonna say the technical skills are better but I'll stick with the fast rate yeah La Liga is not faster pace it's not more as physical as the Premier League is and so and La Liga's where the league that where he excelled in so there are some concerns and we've seen him play against uh, alongside Fred for Brazil. So that could be a potential partnership there. But it just did not inspire me to say that United are going to be overwhelmingly better. I looked at some of his old highlights with him and Fred playing. I think uh, the game against Ecuador and some of the World Cup qualifying matches. And it was only okay. Defensively, Fred has left Casemiro on island so many times. And going forward... Casemiro has to rely on attackers dropping deep or fullbacks dropping in to be a passing target because Fred kind of plays more advanced for Brazil. I think a 4-2-3-1 will be interesting and may fit him more if Fred is able to kind of calm down and play simpler and not as advanced. I think Fred Fred's game does better when he isn't needing to be relied upon as like that def a, a defensive midfielder instead just a, a regular I'd say box to box, but like like central midfielder has a little bit more responsibility than just defensively, right? And so I don't think a four three three would work. I think ETH has to stick with the four two three one because I don't want to leave him as a sole pivot. The, having him as the sole defensive midfielder in that four three three works when you have Cruz and Modric ahead of you to help cover and control the midfield uh, if you're unable to and. Militao and Alaba behind you in order to clean up any mistakes and support you, right? That's when that works. 
I don't think it'll work when you have Fred and Fernandez ahead of you, who, let's be honest, are not necessarily known to be like genuine central defensive midfielders and Maguire Martinez, who to his credit, Martinez, I don't think has been the issue in the last couple of game weeks. But him and Maguire are not the same level as Real Madrid's defense. There's a bit of a discrepancy. So overall, when I look at this transfer, and if I had to give it a hot or not rating, as Jack and I usually do, I'm going to say it's a hot transfer, but it requires not just him. You can't just plug him in and play the way that you want him to, even though, you know, he's a ball winning midfielder and every team probably needs that. So it's going to be easier than maybe a more specialized position, but at the same time to play to his strengths and to minimize his weaknesses, you need to make at least some adjustments to either personnel, whether you get another better midfielder to uh, complement him or you change it, the setup tactically to give him more support whether it is the fullbacks even though i don't really trust the likes of shaw awb uh lot right now but where i think it's going to come from is the the attacking midfield dropping in a little bit deeper in order to give him uh some to in order to alleviate some of the pressure that's on him that's not to say that they're going to help him defensively as much which maybe is a cause of concern but to say that the passing lanes are going to be more open and there's going to be at least more bodies in the midfield to crowd and let him do his thing. Uh, lastly, Casemiro, he had a quote, and honestly, this is a very mutual breakup, which is kind of nice to see. He, he had a quote saying, I've lived the most wonderful story that I've ever thought. I hope to return one day to what will always be my home. Not in a thousand lifetimes will I be able to give back to Real Madrid and the fans all that they have given me. Forever, Hala Madrid. How beautiful Casemiro. Um, despite Casemiro coming to Manchester United, not all is uh, rosy in Manchester uh, right now because uh, there are still some issues underlying that is cause for concern. Number one is the fact that despite Casemiro coming in, and maybe they, they do win some more, that doesn't change that the fact that the Glazers are bad owners, which is why at the time of recording, we have not experienced the Liverpool-Manchester United game yet. But... There might be some protests there because the Glazers are just bad owners, so much so that they're playing to take the Barcelona lever uh, approach and sell shares of future TV income, but potentially at least, to fund Old Trafford expansion. Despite the fact that they are the ones that are seeping money from Manchester United, you know, instead of putting money in, they're taking money out of the club. And instead of using their money that they should probably reinvest into the club because they really haven't yet. They're using the club to pay for the things that the club needs and not in like, a oh, let's take the profits and put it into structural changes. It's no, let's take future income and fund present structural change when that is a big bet and something that they can afford to take on themselves. It's stupid. And then you have stories of potentially a swap deal between Maguire and Pulisic to get Maguire out and Pulisic in. I understand that that Maguire is not a good a good defender and Pulisic is a, a good winger, but they can't be so bold, right, <laughs> to to get rid of a defender when they do need defenders still. And unless they're they're going to get another center back. Is Veron and Martinez going to be enough if one of them gets injured? Are you going to be okay relying on Lindelof and Academy products? I don't know. I don't know. 
And then there's the stories uh, from uh, reported by uh, Samuel Luckhurst saying that the dressing room sources say that some United players feel Ten Hag's approach does not suit their skill set. They would favor a more pragmatic approach against Liverpool. Talk, shut up. I, I know players have their opinions on head coaches, and that is completely fine, right? Obviously, power to the workers, players, whatever, whatever, whatever. But when so many head coaches have come in, tried different approaches, tried to be pragmatic, tried to be a little bit more adventurous, and the players are still saying the same thing, maybe the system doesn't work for you. Maybe that's true. Or maybe no system works for you because you guys suck. And I can imagine that some certain players that are saying this kind of things, I just don't think the players are very good. And hopefully Casemiro can get some more out of them. All right, so that is Casemiro moving to Manchester United. Let's move on to some more news. <sighs> I can't wait to talk about it. Manchester United have been poor. That's gotten me through a lot these past three weeks in terms of West Ham being bad. But another team that's been doing pretty poor that's been, you know, making my, my cold heart a little bit warmer is Chelsea. Because Leeds United looked really good playing Chelsea. And Chelsea looked very very bad so let us talk about leeds united beating chelsea three to zero three nil some might say uh so leeds beats chelsea three to zero and it wasn't because chelsea played down to leeds level it's because jesse marsh the american head coach had a better tactical approach than thomas tuchel i'm not kidding i'm not capping right now it is true and I, I didn't have a hot take of the week. Maybe my hot take of the week this week is that I, I, I really don't think that Thomas Tuchel is getting the most out of this, this Chelsea team. I don't think it's a hot take, but I do think, and this is my hot take, I don't think this time next year, Thomas Tuchel is going to be the Chelsea head coach. That is my hot take of the week. Simply because I just don't think that Yes, they've won the, the, the Champions League two seasons ago, but I just don't think that he has capitalized on this team in a way that is what is expected out of him. And maybe Todd Bowley, a, a, new, a new head coach to coincide with his new reign, is in order if things don't go as well. Me personally, I'd probably keep Thomas Tuchel. But I know how Chelsea fans are. I know structurally Chelsea is run as a club. I know that... Even though Roman Abramovich is not there, I know that Todd Bowley also understands the pressure that is under him and the club to perform either. And that, that is both because it affects them competitively and also financially. So Thomas Tuchel, if perhaps they don't make the Champions League, that I think is the bare level expectation for Chelsea. We're going to run into some issues. So that's my hot take of the week since I didn't say that. Uh, but let's talk instead about... Uh, Chelsea and talk about what Leeds did well. So Leeds under Jesse Marsh, uh, since Marcel Bielsa got fired last season, late last season, they've played a good high energy brand of football that saw them at one point in this game run 10 kilometers more than Chelsea. So this means that there's an aggressive press, more aggressive than most teams are used to. Whenever uh, Chelsea had the ball, you'd have Leeds players, like two or three of them, you know, run in and try to block off passing lanes and try to, you know, get Chelsea to turn the ball over. And this led to uh, Streck uh, to be able to shut down Ruben Loftus-Cheek on the right side, basically 
turning him kind of anonymous. He did not have uh, a, a good game at all. In fact, none of the back line really did. Uh, this allowed Adams, Tyler Adams, American destroyer number six, to bully any Chelsea attack in the midfield and kind of either stop or slow down any Chelsea counterattack. Uh, and that is because A, he's really good at covering space and cutting off options, but B, because, like I said before, the front three of Leeds, Harrison, Rodrigo, and Aronson, were able to swarm the defenders of Chelsea and force them to commit to riskier passes. And that led to more turnovers from Chelsea. Uh, if I look at the stats, I wonder if that really says anything about passes. Chelsea still were able to create accurate passes, but at the same time, you look at their XG and Leeds United completely dominate them, as you'd probably expect, because Chelsea just did not have as many chances because they were getting cut out. And so when you look at other things, like the fact that this press meant that Mendy was pressured off the ball by Brendan Aronson for the first goal, you kind of get the sense that this press worked amazingly for Leeds United and either the players or Thomas Tuchel did not expect them to come out that aggressively. And of course, when I talk about the first goal, got to talk about Brendan Aronson on my FPL team, on the bench though, unfortunately, but a U.S. men's national team pretty much locked in squad player uh he's probably on the plane to qatar he got his first goal of the premier league season by basically pressing edward bendy who has been very good not very well known for his footwork so aronson climbs in and mendy tries to pass the ball aronson cuts it out dribbles and just walks the ball in for as easy of a goal as, as he's gonna get and that is that is not only a credit to Aronson's motor, Aronson's hustle, Aronson's dog in him, but it is a credit to Leeds United and what Jesse Marsh has been able to get out of them, which is this pressing style. Look at the second goal, Rodrigo dunked on James from a great header off of a free kick uh, from Jack Harrison, who has been amazing uh, last season, and especially in this game, got a goal and an assist. Because, yes, he scored a third goal to make it 3-0 to Chelsea. And Chelsea did not really look in control at all. And I mentioned the pressing and the tactics that come with getting Chelsea off the ball. But we also have to talk about the head coach himself. Jesse Marsh is a very personal man and manager. Players have talked about how Jesse challenges them individually to get the most out of them. Individually, he goes up to players and he says... I want to see more of this from you. I expect this is like the goals I want to see from you this season. We've heard Tyler Adams when he came. He, one of his first interviews, he talked about that. Uh, Rodrigo, who, who has come into his own, especially with Bamford out due to injury. And Jack Harrison, who played in MLS, moved up, and has grown the same at the same rate that Leeds United has grown as well. That's a huge strength. I think just like, what separates good managers from great managers, in my opinion at least, is the ability to not just do well tactically, but to individually make players succeed. Even if the, even if the system isn't working, to inspire players to rise above and beyond, to will games into, into winning positions, that is what I think 
makes good managers into great managers. We see that with Klopp. We see that with Pep. You know, I think Klopp is one of the best managers in the game. Jesse Marsh is not Jurgen Klopp, but he is very good at man managing. Compare that to Thomas Tuchel. And I thought Tuchel looked out of sorts. And I know I like to bag on Chelsea, especially because Jack is the Chelsea fan, so we kind of have to balance out. But Chelsea just needs to adapt right now. Tuchel did not really even seem to understand like that, that the pace portion of this game was a big reason why they lost. And instead, he blamed the fact that the staff had to take the bus to Leeds instead of just flying in. Obviously, that's not an actual excuse. I think he believes that. But there just needs to be more from him to adapt to this things in-game and throughout the season that we just not ha- we just haven't seen. When you look at the front three of Harris, Mount, and Sterling, they have not scored a goal this Premier League season. Despite, I would say, these three players being some of the, the better attackers in the Premier League. They have yet to score a goal. Instead, the goals have come from the likes of Reese James and Jorginho. Like, cool, that's awesome, but that's not enough to get you through the entirety of the Premier League season when you have more your defensive players doing better than the attackers, right? I think that Thomas Tuchel needs to change his system. This attacking system is just not working. And that, I'm not saying that they need to full-on change it, right? But something that does need to happen is him getting more out of Havertz, Mount, or Sterling, or heck, be progressive about it. They're not doing well. Take them out. I know Ziyech is probably on his way out. I know Pulisic might be on his way out. But get some new attackers in there. Or maybe don't sell them. Because if Pulisic goes out into Juventus, like he might be rumored to be going to Newcastle, and he does better than this front three, that's going to be squarely on Tuchel. In fact, the fact that they're failing right now, the fact that Chelsea, despite, I would say, a world-class lineup, the fact that they are performing under expectations and being less than the sum of their parts is an indictment on Tuchel's attacking scheme, right? The fact that you can't get attackers involved in the play, the fact that you can't get them the chances, the shots, uh, to get them a good midfield dominance to get them chances is an indictment on the way that he wants to line up. And I don't think a front, a back four will be good for Chelsea. So I'm not saying that. Maybe it's more. Maybe I'm saying that I want to see more personal changes from Chelsea. But regardless, something has to change because it was shambolic. Even Chelsea's mentality, which is something that Thomas Tuchel is in charge of, and it needs to help them go through. Their mentality was terrible. The second that Mendy made that mistake, it was like all the winds has come out of uh, Chelsea's sail. Right, they were growing into the game up until that Brandon Aronson goal, and then what happened? You know, the next sixty minutes, it was all Leeds United, and that's just not what needs to happen. What also needs to happen is Koulibaly not getting yellow cards. Brandon Aronson kind of turned him, and he kind of had to grab him really aggressively in order to stop him. I'm talking about Koulibaly on Aronson. And then he got a second yellow for a bad tactical foul, despite the fact that they were already down 3-0. It was just bad. It was just bad all around. One of the worst performances I've seen from Chelsea uh, in a long time. And that's a, that's credit to, obviously, Jesse Marsh and Leeds United. But also, no credit 
to what Thomas Tuchel has done with Chelsea. I might stick with that hot take. I might. I just might. Uh, I also might give some credit to Fulham. Because when you look at the table right now, it's actually kind of crazy. Because obviously we have Arsenal on top. Uh, we'll talk about them later because they're the only fully undefeated team at, at the time of recording. Uh, and then let's round it out. The top four round out by Manchester City, Leeds United, uh, which is kind of crazy. Tottenham Hotspur, Brighton, Newcastle United. And Fulham are in the top seven. In fact, Nottingham Forest are in the top ten. Brentford is in eighth, and Crystal Palace is in ninth. <laughs> Liverpool currently not in there. Chelsea not there. Leicester City, Manchester United, West Ham United teams that have been in the top ten before not there. It's been a crazy start of the season, and I'm all for it. But talking about Fulham specifically, they beat Brentford for their first Premier League win this season. Honestly, I've looked pretty good this season, all things considered. Uh, Mitrovic has really grown into his own. Reed and Paulinha got the first two goals. Uh, Norgard and Tony, two ve also very good players, equalized uh, to make it 2-2 two to two in Mitrovic, 90th minute. Gets his third goal in three games, which is as much as he had in his last Premier League campaign. So Fulham are currently in the, in the, 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 the top half of the table. Uh, we're top four, I think, end of day yesterday which is kind of fun to see uh i should also shout out that tim ream tim ream of the u.s men's national team what is he like 34 i gotta check this 30 30 yeah 34 man i know ball wow tim ream 34 year old center back captain this team looks pretty okay anthony robinson i kind of do want to see a little bit more out of him because so tim ream he's 34 i don't think he's going to be going to uh qatar really so you know, if he does okay, I'll be happy. Anthony Robinson has not had an assist yet. Hasn't had uh, goals. I think I'm looking for more uh, product from him on at the top level. He did well in the championship, was one of their better players. But too, too often we see him kind of go on streaks of good form than streaks of bad form. And I know this is the Premier League and that things are a lot harder here. But if we want to really step up, we need to have our best left back playing very well. And so I'd like to see more from him, but Fulham uh, doing well is kind of fun to see. Uh, what else? Arsenal. Arsenal are also doing very good. Uh, they're, like I said, the last team to remain perfect. And a lot of that is because they have better players. You know, Gabriel Jesus is, I think, a lot better than Lacazette and Aubameyang in terms of output, at least right now. Two goals and three assists in only three games. Like, five gold contributions in three games. That's crazy. That is crazy, crazy good uh, for him. He's really coming to his own, and I think has shown why he is maybe one of the better number nines uh, this season, right? Um, Arsenal were able to break down the low block really well that came out of Bournemouth. Uh, some of the things I really saw when I was watching this game was that Martinelli and Sock on the wings we're given a lot more creativity and agency to roam and create attacks, which led to a little bit of overwhelming for uh, the the Nottingham uh, Forest side. Is this Nottingham Forest? Bournemouth side. I'm sorry. I'm mixing up my promotional teams. And an another cool thing that I, I saw was uh, Odegaard, who was mad creative, getting two goals. Uh, the fact that he's able to score goals uh, now Maybe pretty regularly, don't know yet, still a small sample size, bodes really well for them because if they have multiple 
pieces that can you know find the back of the net and not just Gabriel Jesus not just Martinelli not just Saka instead you have that entire front four getting onto the score sheet that's gonna be huge because how do you deal with Gabriel Jesus Martinelli Saka and Odegaard running at you when you only have you know a couple of players are you are you gonna double team them are you are you gonna gonna try to mark them there has to be a lot of work that goes into it containing that good of a front four and i said like I, I really like this the core that arsenal have this young core because they're very dynamic and they're very fun to watch and you look at that first goal it was created largely in thanks to a great run by jesus who passed it to i think martinelli and odegaard got the rebound but when Jesus was given that chance to make runs his entire game, when he was able to get runs where he wants, he progressed the balls in ways in this game that I think proved that he's more than just a striker, but a real connective tissue for this Arsenal attack. He kind of cut through the Bournemouth defense like it was butter, right? And just like with Holland uh, last week, how the fact that he had so much gravity towards him and he was getting double marked despite not having the ball, I think it's, that's going to be huge. The fact that Jesus is able to kind of require Bournemouth defenders to pay attention to him and respect him draws them out of position and allows them to, uh, you know, let the likes of Odegaard or Martinelli or Shaka in, and they can get chances from Jesus's movement on the ball, which I think is going to be really important moving forward because you're going to have more focus on Jesus once teams figure out like, oh, Jesus is a big part of their attack. He has a lot of goal contributions. We need to mark him. Well, now you have to deal with Odegaard, who might have a man free now. Oh, well, now you have to deal with Shaka, who might be able to get an assist or create some create some damage from outside the box. That is going to be huge for them. And yeah, uh, the second goal, again, was created by a good run from like the likes of Ben White and Jesus. Odegaard found that. And then... <laughs> That third goal, you know, Saliba had a crazy curler for it. Defenders that can score goals also always helps. Arsenal are not Chelsea, so they can't just rely on their defenders to score goals. But still, a very comprehensive match from Arsenal. And you know, it is still early days. And it's not like the squad that they did face are is overly amazing. Like Crystal Palace, Leicester City, Bournemouth, uh none of which are particularly impressive this season, except maybe Crystal Palace, who have one win, one draw, one loss. I, I, I think we still need to see Arsenal play some good teams. Fulham is going to be an interesting match. I think United, they should win in a couple of weeks, but Everton, they should also win. This might be a pretty easy uh, first, first couple months for Arsenal, but I'm looking at the North London Derby October 1st. That's going to be a very, very interesting match. Uh, I think I think it really comes down to the momentum, and if they if they get a good run of form here, I, I'm forgetting who exactly said it. No, it was Ramsdale. Ramsdale had a quote saying that the mentality has completely changed. So if they can keep that mentality going and the momentum going as well, I think a good base of wins and draws here in the beginning of the season will set them up nicely. Uh, to build off on nine goals for and two goals against is really really good so i think the arsenal are going to do very well this season and i had them almost like rivaling chelsea like barely off the mark for champions league 
But with this kind of form, it's hard to ignore how good that they have been. And I think Jesus unlocked them. I think Arteta has done a lot with uh, squad development to get the most out of them. He has expectations. You need to reach them. I love to see that. I've been hard on him before. But if he can get the process like fully realized this season, I will raise my hands up and say, hey, he has done very good. He's done very good. In fact, I'll say that he's, th- he's done good, at least at the moment of time right now. Uh, and I think a lot of that also just comes down to the fact that he took a risk. He's willing to take risks to be progressive with decision making. And he made uh, Odegaard the captain this season. And despite Odegaard being still relatively young, it's clear that he believed in Odegaard and Odegaard had the leadership skills required to be a good captain. And the fact that he trusts those, that player, the fact that the locker room also trusted that, says to me that he connects with the players very well. And the cohesion in this team behind the scenes is also very good. So, I mean, that's a pretty good deal for Arsenal. Uh, and I think that they've just done very, very well. And I think they will continue to do very well. Top four, maybe. I'm not going to commit to anything yet until the transfer window is done and Jack and I go through our review of the transfer window, but it's looking really good for them, to say the least. All right, all right, let's move on and talk about something that uh, I really wish I didn't have to talk about, but West Ham United, because guys, we suck again. I We're back to where we were I mean, the last time I felt this way about West Ham was like literally like 2020, like early 2020 before the pandemic, before we went on a good run of form uh, in Project Restart and we, we sucked. And I was like, man, is West Ham going to get relegated? That would suck. And now West Ham are dead last, dead last in the league. Zero points, zero goals scored, five against pathetic pathetic it's just it's just bad and we lost to brighton and for those who don't know brighton is a very it's a good team it's a good team but west ham have now gone 10 games 10 games in a row where we have not gotten a win against brighton they are undefeated against west ham in 10 games since 2017 this is all in the premier league since 2017 we've either lost or drawn against them 10 games six points out of 30 that we have gotten from them that's that's just that that's just pathetic i words can't describe how bad this now i'm thinking about it is it 10 games there's no way that had to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Nope, that's ten. That's weird. This sh- sh- shouldn't it be a. Uh, you play. You play every team twice, right? That's 2018, 18, 19, 19, 20, 20, 21, 21, 22. What? Am I? Am I losing my mind right now? Is that how? Is that how bad? This has gotten 1920, 2021, 20, Oh, crap. I didn't, I didn't count this game. I only counted the last. This is 11 games, guys. This is 11 games. We have six points in 33 games. 
in, th in 33 points. Six points in 33 points possible. Oh my gosh, that was worse. You, got, you just got a live reaction to me realizing that's so much worse than before against Brighton. Okay, so this this is I'll, I'll, this may come to surprise to a lot of people uh, seeing West Ham United start as bad as that they ha they've ever had the worst in the Premier League for a while, right? Why is this happening? A lot of this comes down to tactics, comes to personnel choices. Uh, we currently have gone into a rise of crossing in balls to nobody or just crossing them and sucking at converting uh, either headers or getting that final ball to connect with people's heads to begin with. In this game, only 28% of headers, or not headers, of crosses end up succeeding, right? And I think a big issue here was that this is the same formation that got pumped, destroyed, I think, 3-1 to one in the last game week by Brighton, uh, you know, last season. And that's terrible. Obviously, we have Kerr, who was our, our new signing from PSG. He was uh, replaced uh, Craig Dawson uh, in that lineup uh, when you compare it to the last game last season. But it was the same exact formation. And we, I felt like we had the same game plan as the last game of last season. And we expected something differently. It was pretty much unchanged from the lineup last week where we got... Maybe undeservingly so, but we, we got defeated 1-0 by Nottingham Forest. Same lineup, plus Carer. What is the deal, right? First goal. First goal. Zuma bombed forward with no plan, leaving the back line caught off guard once Brighton countered, and Carer conceded a penalty because he, he was behind the, the, the run of play, and when he tackled, he whiffed and and he hit the, the the legs of trossard was it trossard's the one that that converted uh uh it was oh my gosh yep trossard came down and he uh he drew the penalty and that was that and you're wondering a why did zuma do that and b why is that something that was allowed to happen by David Moyes, right? It, it just seems like the choices, the decision-making that David Moyes has had in the past couple of really months, even since the beginning of 2022, have just been immensely poor. Having, having no attacking mindset, no attacking plans, other than let's cross it in and hopefully Antonio can figure something out, that worked against Viborg because Viborg is a, a, a pretty poor t team compared to West Ham, but also because we had good players. Uh, Skamaka was able to connect with his head and score a goal. Cornet was able to deliver good balls in because they proved that they can play well and they weren't given a chance. They has yet to start a Premier League game. And for what? When you look at Antonio, who has six goals in 36 starts. Great. We have a striker that can score one every six games. What is that helping us for? Right? Why is he being relied upon when Skamaka literally scored and played well against Viborg on Thursday? Where was Cornet when he played well against Viborg? Ben Rama... 
I, to my credit, or to, to his credit, and to David Moyes' credit, uh, has been playing a lot better. I think, honestly, probably one of the better players on the pitch. Bowen was invisible. Fornals was invisible. And let's make it clear that these are good players. These are good players who, just like Thomas Stugall and Chelsea, this team is playing to the less of the sum of its parts. Bowen is a good winger. Declan Rice is a good midfielder. Antonio is a, a decent striker. But for some reason, our current game plan uh, of moving things forward, it just gets lost when you have players who don't either know, seem like they know what they're doing, or B, it just seems so disjointed that attacks can end so quickly once a player makes a wrong decision. There's nobody to back them up, or Zuma makes a bad decision and the back line gets caught off guard. There is just no real answers or uh, ideas in place that can inspire a team, right? It, it is just, let, let's move it forward, figure everything else out later. West Ham now have one win in 10 in the league and six wins in 21 since January. That's legitimately, when you look at the form table, relegation form. What is going on? This is, it's just not okay because David Moyes was completely tactically, tactically outclassed by Graham Potter. Potter had an answer to every question. How to deal with Antonio? Well, you stick Dunk and some of the uh, backline on him to, you know, bully him. You know, Antonio is very physical, so you just, you know, kind of hard hit him. You know, uh, how do you... Uh, uh, how do you make sure that we can't progress the ball well? There you go. Uh, you pressure the ball off poor ball handlers like Zuma and maybe Fornals. How do you stop Skamaka from making a difference once he's subbed on? Well, sub in uh, Estupinon and to, to provide better defensive cover against him. Rice and Suchek, I think, have also played pretty poorly. They lost their mentality and their ability to run the midfield. Suchek, I think, has been a detriment to this team despite me liking him despite me having his name on the back of my jersey it's just been very poor from him and this this ability that they used to have made them one of the best midfield duos in the entire league at this point i have to question Moyes. yes most team was downright bad but like with tuchel and chelsea it is his job to manage a squad to get the most out of them and to adapt to changes tactically the same way that mikel arteta and jesse marsh did this weekend right you start the same lineup as always, despite spending 100 million euros in the transfer window. You put in subs too late. You don't make any tactical changes. Your attacking setup is to cross and pray. Simply put, we need more. It's just not new. It's not just new players. We know that we need a left back. We know that we need a central midfield to at least cover for Rice and Suchek or replace Suchek if he keeps on playing badly. But we also need a mentality and tactical shift, or else we'll be fighting a relegation fight with Europa League level players. Again, Zuma, Fabianski, Cresswell, Benrama, Fornals, Antonio, Bowen, Suchek. These are not terrible players. These are not players who should lose three games in a row. I know one of them was against Manchester City, but when you go against an admittedly good Brighton and a good Nottingham Forest side, you at least score goals. You at least get points. You should be getting wins, and they're not. And that is so infuriating to see 
maybe one of my my biggest pet peeves in soccer other than i don't know bad crosses bad corners uh what else do i not like in soccer i don't know but one of the only things i don't i also don't like is just very overly conservative players not not only conservative overly conservative managers there we go because david moyes is so well known for getting his players adapted to the Premier League very, very slowly, you know, getting them some minutes here, some minutes there, and then they start maybe one or two months after they come in. You can't do that when you're trying to be an elite team. When you have the players like Manchester City does, you can afford to maybe not start Holland, give Alvarez a time to adapt. When you have a good plug-and-play system like Liverpool, you can afford to put them in right away and know that they know the system. But when you, A, don't have that good of a system, and B, don't have as high-quality players, you need to just trust that putting Skamaka in can create something. And after this, if I, if I see the same lineup get trotted out next week against Aston Villa, I will not watch the game. Because I know what is going to happen. We can't have teams coaches that are so against changing with the times and changing with the information that's given to them and instead sticking with what they know because it's so annoying to see that happen it's not fun to watch teams do that which may be why i don't like watching chelsea and Tuchel play because it just doesn't seem to be that progressive all that much you know west ham right now in the past three games in league, are a bore to watch because they're bad. Because David Moyes is refusing to make progressive changes with personnel to help this team. It's it's poor. It's poor. We're fighting a relegation fight with Europa League level players. I'll leave it at that. West Ham, I don't think are going to get relegated. If they do, I'll cry. But there just needs to be more. Let's talk about some happier stuff. Let's talk about the U.S. men's national team players shining. It's been a, a very good weekend for the U.S. men's national team players in Europe and in MLS. So let's talk about them and talk about what it means for the U.S. men's national team going into pretty closely here, the September window. So obviously, as I mentioned, Aronson scored against Chelsea. He pressured uh, Mendy off. Uh, he spun Koulibaly and forced him to take on a yellow as well. Tyler Adams, I think, honestly, was banned at the match for Leeds United this past weekend because uh, someone posted his stats. And he also looked at the eye test, and he was just really, really good. He covered a lot. But he had 82.9% pass accuracy, 62 touches, 31 uh, successful passes out of 41, 8 out of 10 final third passes worked out, 6 duels won, 5 ball recoveries, 4 tackles won, 3 interceptions, 3 fouls, 2 times fouled, Two chances created, one block, and one shot. He just really did it all. He's got that dog in him. He's got that motor, and I think that's going to be really well, do really well for him going into uh, the season. I think having him be on good form when he wasn't on great form in Le at, at RB Leipzig because he just wasn't getting a lot of playing time, I think it's going to be really important for him to do well in Leeds United because of that. Aronson, of course, obviously is going to be good. And then we go into our striker portion of the this segment because Sargent got a brace. He for the first goal he wrong footed the middle wall goalkeeper and uh, scored another one uh, later on. 
in a 2-0 win for Norwich City over Millwall. Huge. I know this is in the championship, but he has now had three goals in three three games. If he can get some good form, I know I didn't even mention him uh, in my, the strikers that I would take to Qatar last week, but if he can continue this form, I, I, it's going to be a very hard decision for, for Greg Werhalter to make when you have four to five really good strikers who are finding the back of the net. Because you also have Pifok, who got a really clinical goal against RB Leipzig, and uh, he also got an assist when he laid it off uh, for uh, Becker, who scored uh, for RB Leipzig, who, uh, you know, was scored against RB Leipzig. RB Leipzig got defeated by Union Berlin 2-1. Pifok was the man of the match, and that's huge because, again, he's probably our best striker uh, at a top European level. He's playing at the highest European level out of all of our strikers, and that's huge for him to legitimately be doing well and getting goals in competitive matches. If he can continue that too, again, Greg Beraldo is going to have some very hard decisions to make. And when you look at Jesus Ferreira, who is maybe our starting number one, he also scored against the best Eastern Conference team, the Philadelphia Union, and has been in the conversation for the golden boot here in America in Major League Soccer. We also have Maybe he's a little bit out of form, Greg Berhalter, but Haji Wright scored a brace in Turkey against uh, uh, Trebzonaspor, who won the league last year, won the Turkish Super League last year. A brace against the reigning champions. And Brandon Vasquez did not score, but he has scored at least like, you know, uh, I want to say in the last five games before this last game against New York Red Bulls, uh, he scored against, he, he, he's had, sorry, he's had, Five goals in four games. That's even better, you know, since the 24th of July in the past uh, in the past month. He scored five goals, right? Now we have five really good striker options. Not really good, but five decently good striker options that I think all deserve at least a look at the September window to see which one is which, who differentiates from who. But honestly, if we take any combination of these five, at this current point in time, I'm feeling a lot more confident. I still say that Jesus Ferreira is the only 100% lock because of the form, because of how he's played with the system. But Sergeant Pifak, Haji Wright, Brandon Vasquez, who knows there? And I'm really excited to see how that all plays out. We went from strikers not scoring at all to strikers finding good form, which I think is very, very important. And I think bodes well for our number nine situation. Again, like I said, I think there needs to be some differentiation between uh, the top three and the bottom two strikers, which I think is going to make that September window very important. If I had to guess right now, Jesus, Pifok, and Sargent, I think, are the three that uh, that get taken by Greg Berhalter. Pepe is a ways out. I don't think he's going to get a real shot at Augsburg, which means he won't get a shot at the US national team. I think DK is still injured, so I don't think he's got a chance, and everyone else might be a little bit far off. But, you know, we'll see how this continues, but I have big hopes on all these strikers finding well in Europe and in MLS. So, yeah. Other than that, we had Richards getting a debut for Crystal Palace and showing well. Uh, Scally's now started three in a row for Gladbach. I would not honestly be too bummed out if he is our like backup left back in Qatar. I know a lot of people have the reservations, but... I think he has a lot to offer, and the fact that he's doing well in the Bundesliga has to mean something. 
Sitting in the Bundesliga, uh, Gio Reyna is back on the field and he's been doing well for Dortmund. He kind of had some pain uh, last last week for his hamstring that he injured. Uh, so they took it slow. I really hope they take it slow with him because he's legitimately one of our highest ceiling players, one of our most technical players. And he's back on the field with, for Dortmund, got subbed on. And I'm really excited to see that. So things are trending upwards. Tim Weah did get injured. But as a whole, I am liking what I'm seeing from this this U.S. Men's National Team uh, pool in terms of how they're doing. Yes, Zach Stefan isn't doing that well. Matt Turner has not gotten a lot of playing time, but Ethan Horbath has been doing well. Matt Turner I also just trust in as well. Uh, but we have good performances from a lot, a lot of our center backs. Uh, Malik Tillman has been doing well. Our our our, our midfield, Aronson, Adams, Weston McKennie is like now going to be starting. He recovered from injury weirdly quickly. Uh, you know, Tim Weah injured. Hopefully, he comes back soon. Uh, Reyna is on the field. Our strikers are are doing well. Big issues are you know, Dest is he going to make a move? Pulisic is he going to make a move? I'd like to see some more. Uh, play from them. Yunus Musa is also getting some uh, playing time. That's cool too. So yeah, overall good trends from the U.S. men's national team. All right, let's let's end this episode off by talking about Borussia Dortmund and the Bundesliga. And before we do that, let's talk about MLS. And I promise, um, bringing this up for a good reason. So in MLS, you know, there's some cool results that happened this past weekend. Minnesota United. Uh, my home team beat second place Austin FC to continue their very good form. San Jose got the better of the Shield leaders LAFC, and the Philadelphia Union beat Wayne Rooney's DC United six to zero away from home, making it thirteen to zero on aggregate this season. But the biggest, yeah, not biggest, most underrated WTF moment was LA Galaxy going up two to zero in the first half against Seattle Sounders, and kind of choking that lead away to go down 3-2 to two, and then needing a penalty to salvage a point, drawing 3-3 three to three at home. You know, that's crazy. Like, we always say, like, here in America, you know, MLS after dark, MLS is crazy, and we can beat anyone. That was nothing compared to Dortmund. Dortmund was going, uh, it was up 2-0 to zero in the 88th minute. But... Simply put, Bremen had that dog in them, and uh, the, the the goals, the, the goals came from uh uh to beginning with uh, in the the first half I should say Julian Brandt assisted by Marco Royce and uh, Rafael Guerrero also assisted by Marco Royce uh in the that one was in the second half in the seventy seventh minute, and yeah going to the eighty eighth minute, Dortmund were. You know, it was a little bit. It was a little bit tepid from them. They probably could have scored some more. Uh, Bremen were really growing in this game, and actually, at that point, were getting better and better. Had their chances, couldn't put anything away, and then everything just kind of fell apart. Every goal that Bremen scored, they wanted it more. Their head coach seemed to wanted more. Ole Werner. They they shouted he shouted them on even after they equalized, and honestly it was amazing to see Lee Buchanan scores two to one an amazing amazing goal go go watch it if you can, uh and that was in the 89th minute, 90 plus third minute 
Nikolaus Schmidt gets a header on a, a ball from Amos Peeper. And the 90 plus fifth minute, the legitimate last minute of the game, substitute Oliver Burke scores to make it two to three. Yes, uh, Oliver Burke, not exactly uh, the player that you would expect to do that. Uh, I only remember him from that pretty poor Sheffield United uh, team, I think. Then it went on alone to Millwall uh, this past season for the, the latter half of it. Uh, but he scored that, that, that winner. and. Dortmund lost the game in six minutes, and you saw this the just the the mentality. I, I know Dortmund fans get tired of the, the the term mentality getting thrown around. I know I'm tired of using it all the game all episode long, but like Kobel, their their uh, goalkeeper was completely destroyed, and just seemed to like kind of affect them in a way that I haven't really seen them get affected by a single goal, right? Once it was they were they were up two to one. You know, once I can see that first goal, I just knew it was over. I just knew I wasn't expecting the win. I was not expecting Bremen to win. I was like, oh well, Werder Bremen got one. I could see them getting a scrappy goal and kind of salvaging a points here. But they did more than that. They were in it. They were in it to win it. Uh. It, 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 their, their head coach, Ole Werner, is definitely one to watch. I, I think that he's done great with this team. I think the only concern here is uh, not the starting 11, but it's with their depth. Yes, they, they got you know some goals. Uh, all their goals actually came from substitutes. But that's not to say that they can rely on that all the time. And when I look at the rest of the Bundesliga, I see the subs uh, from Werder Bremen. And I say... If there's any semblance of an injury crisis, Werder Bremen are going to be in a little bit of trouble. But that's not to say that they weren't really good, and maybe maybe they don't need all, all those players to always stay healthy if they can have like that next man up kind of thing and have, again, the mentality to just want it, to want it more. I know that also gets overused, but it just seemed like Dortmund were outplayed for this game. Because honestly, Bremen deserved it. Despite playing away from home, playing uh, playing at, at uh, Borussia Dortmund's home ground, they outshot them. They outpassed Dortmund. They had a better uh, XG, 1.31 to 0.51. They won more duels than them. It just, it, it, it was a dominant performance that was not indicative when you look at the earlier scoreline, but Werder Bremen completely, completely deserved to win this because the changes that, that, that Dortmund uh, made were not very good. Uh, Emery Chen had to get us subbed on because uh, Dahoud got injured in the 18th minute, but he was very poor. Modesta, who, again, I, I don't think he starts if Sebastian Allaire is healthy, but he was he was absolutely poor. Like, he got a 5.9 on, uh, on foot mob. He only had 12 touches, you know, offside three times. What? That's crazy. Uh, lost only... Every ground duel and only won one ground duel in all. That was one out of eight duels that he won as a striker. It just, just not good enough. Just not good enough at all. Marco Royce, obviously, is probably going to be one of the only uh, bright spots for this team uh, and in their performance. And obviously, getting Gio Reyna some more, uh, some more playing time. But it just, it just was not good enough. And it, it, it really seemed like Bremen were playing Dortmund, who should be challenging for the Bundesliga title, at least on paper, 
but it just it just wasn't the case. And something that I thought was really really interesting was a stat uh, that came out of this game, uh, which was uh, since the 2012-2013 season, Bayern have won 39 of their 44 matches against promoted teams, including only two defeats. Borussia Dortmund won only 27 out of 45. This defeat against Bremen was the 10th, 10th defeat against a promoted team in only 10 years. And that doesn't tell you that there is a skill gap between Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich. And maybe more importantly, that Borussia Dortmund oftentimes are the, the sabotagers of their own success. I don't know what else will. Right. When, when, I think this result is really indicative of the kind of dominance that Bayern Munich has. Because when you look at it, I don't really think that Bayern Munich are going to lose this title. Uh, some of their most storied rivals, most likely rivals to get them off of their throne, uh, Bayer Leverkusen. Three losses in a row, only one goal scored. They're in the relegation spots right now. Uh, RB Leipzig. I mentioned got beaten by Union Berlin only two points a ways out already probably should have picked up some more easier points from the likes of uh, FC Köln and uh, Stuttgart but drew those games Borussia Dortmund probably the most likely to challenge Bayern Munich won the first two games but then lost their heads on this game and we've said this time and time again on this podcast. If you want to beat Bayern Munich, you have to be perfect. Because what did Bayern Munich do this, e- this uh, weekend? They beat Bochum 7-0. to zero. They scored more goals. <laughs> they, they scored more goals than, than Borussia Dortmund did this entire season in just one match. In fact... In fact, when you look when you look at uh, the goals scored, yeah, they've scored more goals uh, this season than Borussia Dortmund, RB Leipzig, and Bayer Leverkusen combined. And these are the, those are the three teams that are supposed to be in the top four with Bayern Munich, right? Like the only way for to beat Bayern Munich is to wait for them to beat themselves and to beat them when you're against them in uh, when you go head to head. Outside of that. You can't drop points because if you, I highly doubt that Bayern Munich is going to drop points uh, uh, to to Werder Bremen the way that Dortmund did, and that's a test and testament to Bayern Munich. They are so close to the perfectly well-run team in the Bundesliga that 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 this single loss to Werder Bremen kind of spells automatic defeat to Borussia Dortmund because unless they can kind of go on the rest of their campaign with literally maybe two or three more losses if that then they're it's already out of reach for them because you know that Bayern Munich are going to be that good they're going to be uh almost perfect and they have been almost perfect because now they're looking at potentially winning 11 titles in a row now I get it Dortmund lost Sancho they lost Holland recently two big names but this league has been a one-dog race due in part to how poorly Dortmund has been run, right? I, I feel like they haven't really invested enough in their defense. Uh, I, I see a lot of the same defenders as last year when they had a lot of defensive issues. They have a, a relatively poor medical staff given how many injuries they have for a, uh, a a top team. Of course, you can't, you know, 
Sebastian Allaire, kind of hard to, to stop that, but still. And they are often overzealous uh, to sell young players. Obviously, it works. It gets the nice profits. Uh, Bellingham, I believe, is going to be the next one, but they sold Holland for $60 million. Uh, they sold Sancho for 80 north of that, 80 million. And so it's good. It allows them to buy uh, in prime players like Allaire, Hazard, uh, Hummels, Witzel, who've added a lot, you know, and that's funded from the young players that they sell on. But you can't deny that their model has been hampered, uh, it ha has hampered their competitiveness as much as it's helped. Because you get world class players like Jaden Sancho, like Erling Holland. And then you have to sell them on. And so when you build a team around that and you have so much, uh, so much change all the time, you can't really build a good foundation, right? And, and it's not just me saying that. Marco Royce had a quote saying, quote, it's a real shame to see, to see that we are signing incredibly good young players in Dortmund who then unfortunately have the dream of playing somewhere else after two to three or four years. And I understand, right, that if they give their all for those three to four years, that's great, you know. But these are players who have the expressed knowledge that they are not here in Dortmund to win titles. They're not. They're not here to win trophies. It's nice that they did, you know. Dortmund uh, oh, won the DFL Pokal a couple seasons ago. That's awesome to, to see. And I'm glad. I think those players are very happy about that. But when Holland came from RB Salzburg to Dortmund, he didn't come there to win the Bundesliga with with uh, Dortmund. Whatever he may say, withstanding, it is just a fact. He came there because they're very good at develop, developing players, and they will not stand in the way of selling selling you off. But when Bayern's dominance is just a part of the furniture right now, you can't beat them no matter how you hard you try. It's structural, right? Because Dortmund doesn't get Bellingham, Holland, Sancho, or Reyna if there weren't those promises to let them move on to a bigger club later. So the way that I see it, it's almost just as much of a Bundesliga problem than it is just Dortmund. Yes, they can say, hey, we want to sign players who want to play for us. But then, do they win the DFL Pokal because they don't get Bellingham from Birmingham City? because they don't get Jaden Sancho, because they don't get Holland from RB Salzburg. I don't really know if that's going to be the case. So when you look at it, I keep on saying that, I'm sorry. When you view it from a bird's eye view, it's just as much the Bundesliga's issue as it is Dortmund's issue. Because without huge changes to the way that the Bundesliga operates, either competitively or financially, other clubs either A, won't be able to buy good players because they can't afford them because Bayern Munich has, you know, they get they consistently get all the Champions League money. They consistently get a lot of the money that the Bundesliga makes off of TV deals. So they just can't compete and buy world-class players. Or B, they can't afford to be good competitively because... If they try to keep good players, it won't work because they just want to move on to a, either a bigger club or Bayern Munich, which hurts those smaller clubs. So change is needed. I don't know what it is, but the Bundesliga is not in a healthy place right now. And I like listening to uh, the Total Soccer Show's uh, analysis of the Bayern Munich dominance of the Bundesliga and how really it is an issue. 
because it's like that DJ Khaled me and they are they are suffering from their own success. There, there is less of an appetite to watch the Bundesliga, despite the fact that I think it's a very interesting league. I've been watching it a lot more now that I've been getting into Union Berlin. But when you have one team consistently winning, the TV audience is not going to be there, right? In the Premier League, you have a lot of very well established teams who, even if they don't win it every single year, there is a lot of competition and maybe Chelsea win. Maybe if Arsenal can, can will win in a couple of years. Serie A, I think it's getting a, a lot more popular because Juve are not just dominating now. Maybe Inter win. Maybe AC Milan win. Maybe Juve win. Maybe Napoli win. Maybe Fiorentino wins. Maybe Atlanta wins. But now when you look at clubs like PSG or Bayern, I can almost safely say that Bayern Munich is probably going to win the next five Bundesliga titles. And this is definitely going to be an episode for another time. But the Bundesliga needs to structurally change how they deal with either the finances or competitively how they design their league and their clubs. Because I'm not saying 50 plus one rule has to go away, but something in the rule books has to change. Or else Dortmund are going to be losing games like this. And it's going to be a bigger deal than it should be. Yes, the mentality wasn't there. Yes, they lost. But we shouldn't be having this conversation that Dortmund's season is effectively over in the Bundesliga three games into it. Just because Bayern Munich, we know, is going to be perfect, has only conceded one goal, I want to say, and scored 15. Are you guys having fun yet? Because I sure am not. I appreciate the fact that the Bundesliga is a fun league outside of just the title race. I understand that Union Berlin right uh is a fun team to watch sc freiburg is going to be a fun story to continue to uh, enjoy and there's a lot of good teams that could challenge for top four and for the european spots but unless we're doing more to make the, the top of the title race more exciting borussia dortmund losing is just going to be kind of the norm from here on out and I'll leave that episode there. We talk about a lot about the Premier League, some about the U.S. soccer, uh, men's national team doing well, as well as we ended off with some Bundesliga. If you guys like the show, add Final Third Show uh, on Twitter to hear more from us, finalthirdshow.com. If you want a one-stop shop for all things Final Third Show, I think Jack will be back next week, so it'll be fun uh, to get his, get his input on how his cruise went and how the last couple of weeks of soccer have gone in his mind as someone who has just been casually watching it. I think that'll be interesting. Uh, yeah, we'll see you guys same time, same place next week for that Monday news and predictions episode. Tell your dad about the show. Tell your friend about the show. I'm sure they would all love to hear about the happenings in the Premier League. And yeah, see ya. And Jack says uh, bye for now here. So we'll say it. Bye for now. Yeah.